What a great song that is. It just, every time you sing that song, it just, uh, man, it's exciting. Well, I put my glasses on and get to work here. Let me tell you a little bit about myself other than that I'm old. What, what a lousy introduction that was, eh? Um, been in ministry for 40 years, uh, spent the last 32 years pastoring the church in Georgetown, the Alliance Church there. It wasn't a lousy introduction, it was good. <laughs> pastoring the Alliance Church there. Um, when the denomination started to go sideways theologically, we started looking for a, a family of churches that we could connect with, and um, we knew about Harvest, we heard about the GCC, and, and just God connected us. That's how I met Paul Whittingstall. And over the last couple of uh, years, Paul and Sue and I and Cindy have become friends. Last uh, two weeks ago, we were in Florida together at the uh, Senior Pastors Conference. Uh, I'm not sure exactly the name of it. I was, I was invited to go as a guest, which was a real treat for Cindy and me to get to know um, just some of the, the pastors within the GCC. Cindy came home after that, and she said um, to a friend of ours, she said, I've always been comfortable with my age. She's 60 now. I married an older woman, obviously. <laughs> um, <clears throat> she's 60, and she said, I was always really comfortable with my age, but now there's something that's sort of making me sad, and it's that I'm, I'm not young anymore, that we can kind of fellowship and get involved with these young people and just watch God doing great things in the years to come through the GCC. But um, this opportunity for me this morning is a blessing. I'm thankful to be here, and I'd like to, uh, talk, to the, talk to you this morning about the necessity of forgiveness and reconciliation within the church, and I want to do that from the book of Philemon. But let me begin by asking you this question. Have you ever noticed how Acts, the book of Acts, ends in a very, very unsatisfactory way for the reader? You're kind of left hanging. Paul is in prison for two years, and the gospel is being preached. Luke tells us that he's proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus with boldness and without hindrance. So in about three decades, the gospel has gone from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria, and maybe not to the outermost parts of the earth, but to the center of the empire, to Rome, where Paul is imprisoned preaching the gospel. And it's unsatisfactory for the reader in some senses... Not that God didn't inspire it to be this way, but it's unsatisfactory in some senses because there's a ton of unanswered questions. What happened to Paul? Did he go to trial before Nero? Was he released? Was there a second imprisonment? Did he get to go to Spain? A lot of these things we simply don't know the answers to. But one thing we can say with absolute certainty is that these years for the Apostle Paul were extremely productive years. And we can say that because in his prison epistle, 2 Timothy, written to Timothy, the last epistle he wrote, he says this to Timothy, Timothy, I am suffering bound with chains like a criminal, but the word of God is not bound. So somehow, this, the greatest apostle, the greatest missionary of all time, although he was constrained and bound in prison, was watching his ministry flourish all over the world. And you say to yourself, well, how is that possible? And I answer and say, I don't know. Except there's one story that illustrates what God was doing. And maybe the little book of Philemon is put in the Bible for us to help us understand what God was doing through the Apostle Paul at this particular time. So I want to tell you the story about Philemon and Onesimus. Philemon lived in Colossae, a city of about 25 to 30,000 people, kind of a minor city in the Roman Empire, but 160 miles from the great metropolitan city, metropolis of Ephesus. He was married to Apphia, had a son, at least one son named Archippus, and he lived in a large home, as I said, in Colossae with his family and his slaves. Sometime around the mid-50s A.D., Philemon went probably to Ephesus on business, to conduct business. And there, in the sovereignty of God, he met the Apostle Paul, who was pastoring the church 
for a three-year stint, Church of Ephesus. And in the sovereignty and in the grace of God, the Lord, through the ministry of Paul, saved Philemon. He heard the gospel. His life was radically changed. And he became a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. A bond of fellowship and friendship began to grow between Paul and Philemon. And in time, Paul commissioned Philemon and his disciple Epaphras, who went back to Colossae to start a church. And the church was successful. The church met in Philemon's large, spacious, comfortable home. One of Philemon's household slaves was a young man by the name of Onesimus. Onesimus means useful. And that name useful was almost certainly given to Onesimus by Philemon. And it's a reflection of the value that he placed on this young man, this young slave, who was his property. Onesimus was a trusted slave. He had access to Philemon's wealth. Philemon trusted him. But Onesimus decided to hatch a plan with premeditation and probably with a high degree of malice. He decided that he was going to rob his master. He was going to flee to the city of Rome and find anonymity in the teeming mass that was the city of Rome at that time, about a million people. So, as I said, with a lot of premeditation, he plans his escape. He takes a large amount of money. Almost certainly he took a couple of changes of clothing, expensive clothing, and some jewelry. He would have made his way to Ephesus, the port of Ephesus, taken a ship to Ostia, and then from there he would have made the journey to Rome. And his plan was probably simply to hide himself in the city and live large with the wealth that he had acquired through his theft. Now, at some point in time, for reasons that we simply don't know, Onesimus sought out the Apostle Paul. Now, it's entirely possible that Onesimus had met Paul previously when Philemon perhaps took him to Ephesus. It's possible that he had heard the gospel previously. It's possible that he had heard the gospel and he had scoffed and mocked and rejected the message of Jesus. Or, I'm I'm almost certain that he heard the gospel preached by Epaphras and Philemon when they came back and started the church in Philemon's home. We don't know the reasons why Onesimus sought out the apostle Paul, but he did. And the apostle Paul led him to Jesus. Now, this is a musical. You would probably interject the song, what do you do with a, how do you solve a problem like Maria? How do you solve a problem like Onesimus? For those of your Sound of Music fans, how do you solve a problem like Onesimus? He proves his worth to Paul. Paul realizes the ability of this young man. He begins to serve the apostle Paul. He begins to bless him. Paul begins to use him to extend his ministry from his prison out into the streets and the suburbs of Rome. He proves his worth to the Apostle Paul. He is useful to the Apostle Paul, but Paul is a problem. What do I do with this young man? He is the property of Philemon. And so as he thought about it, as I'm sure he prayed about it, I'm sure he wrestled with it, he decided to make a decision That was a very, very difficult decision. He decided that he was going to send Onesimus back to Philemon. As I said, this would have been a difficult decision. Because Onesimus was a fugitive from the law. He was a runaway slave. He was a fugitive from Roman justice. And Romans treated their slaves harshly, brutally, and cruelly. They had absolutely no rights. They were considered the chattel of their masters. They could be sold, whipped, or crucified at the whim of the person who owns them. A Roman historian talks about the fact that one day a woman had never seen a crucifixion, so she crucified one of her slaves just to see what it was like. That is how cheap, that is how worthless 
useful's life was at this particular moment. Ever since um, the revolt of Spartacus back in 73 to 71 BC, Romans had, had lived in fear of slave revolts. And the only way that they understood to deal with slaves was through brutality and cruelty to keep them subservient, to keep them docile. And so Philemon would have been under intense pressure from his neighbors to deal out swift and harsh judgment on this young man, Onesimus. But regardless, having completed his letter to the Colossians and giving that letter to a man named Tychicus, he now wrote a short letter to Philemon and gave it to Onesimus. And they left Rome together probably went to Ostia, jumped on a ship to Ephesus, and walked 160 miles back to Colossae. And that would have been a very, very, very long journey. Because Onesimus knew that his life hung in the balance. They arrived in Colossae. Antiquitus and Onesimus go to the church, go to the home of Philemon. And they're ushered into his presence, a fugitive slave whose life is not worth that. And another young man carrying the epistle of Colossians. And they stand before Philemon, and Onesimus hands him a letter, and Philemon takes it, and he reads these words. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Philemon chapter, well, (laughs) There's only one chapter. Turn to Philemon. And this is what Paul wrote to Philemon, and this is what Philemon read that day as Onesimus stood in front of him. Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Apphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house, grace to you and peace from God our Father, And the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have towards the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. For I've derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. Accordingly, Though I am bold enough to command in Christ to command you to do what is required, and for love's sake I prefer to, to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. I'm sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him, with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I prefer to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but your own accord. For this perhaps is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer a slave, but more than a slave, as a beloved brother, especially to me, and how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. If you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hands. I will repay it to say nothing of your owing me, even your own self. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I say. At the same time, prepare a guest room for me, for I'm hoping that through your prayers I will be graciously given to you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greetings to you, and so to Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. That is the word of the living God. 
I'm sure that Philemon would have been conflicted. If it was me, I would have been deeply convicted, conflicted. I'm now a follower of Jesus Christ. My obligation is to extend grace and forgiveness and seek reconciliation, but this guy robbed from me. And more than that, he betrayed my trust. I am angry. I am embarrassed. My neighbors are laughing at me. I'm conflicted. So what did Philemon do? Well, history and tradition tell us that Onesimus became the bishop of Ephesus. It's almost certain that what we just read is included in the canon of Scripture because of Onesimus insisting that it be. Onesimus was martyred either late in the first century or early in the second century, either by Domitian or Trajan, we don't know. But he lived a long life and served the Lord faithfully. So we know that Philemon did the right thing. Philemon extended grace. He forgave, he sought reconciliation, and a bond of love and trust was reestablished deeper and more profound than anything that had existed before. Imagine, if you would, for a second, if Philemon had remained intransigent in his anger, in his bitterness, in his unforgiveness. We can say without any shadow of a doubt that this letter would not be extant. We would not have a copy of this letter today. And I think we can also say very confidently that the church in Colossae would have atrophied and died because of the sin of his bitterness, the sin of the leader's bitterness permeating the church, his anger flowing out into the church. Remember the Apostle Paul said when he was writing to the, to the, uh, the Corinthians? He talked about sin as leaven. And he says, a little leaven spreads through the entire lump of dough. So deal with that man, 1 Corinthians 5, deal with that man who is sinning. Keep the church pure. I think we can say with a lot of confidence that had Philemon behaved in an ungodly, unchrist-like manner, this church would have atrophied and died, and we wouldn't be sitting here this morning talking about this book. Because a church where the grace of forgiveness, the grace of the gospel does not flow freely... A church where the grace of the gospel is not intuitive, a church where it's not wired into our DNA, is a church that is useless in the hands of the living God. We must be a church that lives out, that exemplifies the gospel in our relationships, or else we become a sounding gong, a crashing cymbal, and nothing but an irritant to those people who hear us proclaim a message that we are unwilling to live. So it's absolutely critical to the success of the church that we forgive. Now I'm sitting here standing before a bunch of people that look really nice. Everybody has treated me really kindly since I got here. I would venture to say that the vast majority of you are lovely people. But it's also very possible that some of you have been deeply hurt and wounded and you're carrying bitterness and anger and a grudge. It's entirely possible. My church that I just resigned from and was, was stepped down from is very similar to this church. Even the shape of the room is similar. And I've often said to them, are you sitting over in that corner because the person you're angry with is sitting over in that corner? Is there a festering wound? Because it deeply, deeply impacts the effectiveness of our church if we are unable to live the gospel with each other. And so we need to think about this carefully. And so I want to, next, today and next Sunday, I want to sort of preach this book in sort of two, two, two phases. Today I want to talk about the necessity of forgiveness, the necessity of reconciliation in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then next week I want to talk about the nature, the how-to. What does forgiveness look like? And let me just say this at the beginning. There's a little caveat. There is so much about forgiveness that I will not say. There are so many stones that I will leave unturned. I simply can't in the time allotted to me deal with forgiveness the way that it needs to be dealt with. So understand that and be gracious when I don't say some of the things that I need to say. 
So let's talk from the first 10 verses about the necessity of genuine forgiveness in the church. And the first thing I want to say is this, is that genuine forgiveness leads to peace in the church. Now, maybe you noticed this, but when I read the introduction, Paul's introduction to the book of Philemon, or the letter to Philemon, is radically different than almost every other epistle that he writes. At the beginning of his epistles, he generally says something like this, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, here are my credentials, called of God by the will of God to proclaim the gospel. This is who I am. I have been given a role, I have been given a status in your life as an apostle. This introduction is radically different. This introduction is very, very egalitarian, very humble. Look at how he calls him. He says, I'm a prisoner for Christ Jesus. And Timothy is my brother. Not my son in the faith, my brother. Philemon, you are also my beloved fellow worker. Apphia, you're my sister. Archippus, you are a fellow common soldier. The word there used is like grunt soldier. You can't get further down the rank than grunt And that's how he refers himself. This aged apostle who has been called by God to preach the gospel, seen Jesus Christ, and he puts himself on the same level as Archippus, Philemon's kid, who was a fellow worker in the gospel. Paul is making the point that in Christ there is no hierarchy at all. Because at the foot of the cross, the ground is absolutely level. There is no rank, status, hierarchy, or pecking order in the church because grace is the great leveler. Always has been, always will be. And it's grace through which peace flows. Grace to you and peace through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's why he ends his book by speaking about the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Be with your spirit, Philemon. Paul is saying subtly, but he is saying it emphatically, that we are sinners saved by grace. Every single one of us stand at the foot of the cross on exactly level ground. The only thing that we contributed to our salvation, the only thing that we contributed to our salvation was the sin that made it necessary, right? And so before the cross, there is and equality. We are sinners saved by grace. We are all recipients of the grace of God. And through that grace, we have received peace with God. By the grace of God manifest in our lives, sovereignly and unconditionally poured into our lives, when we are running from God as fast as we could, when our heart was stoned, and when we hated him, the Lord Jesus intersected us and saved us, not because of our righteousness, but because of his and his sovereign will. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, a grace that was purchased on the cross. And as this grace... And this forgiveness that flows into our life through the gospel and the implication that Paul is saying here in the introduction and the conclusion is Philemon, this grace has got to flow through your life to others. It's got to flow through your life to others. We have got to maintain peace within the church. So Paul says, be diligent Work hard at, be passionate about the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace within the body of Christ. Grace compels us towards forgiveness and reconciliation that creates and maintains peace. Put most simply, how can we, sinners saved by grace, from a horrific burden of sin. How can we, who have received the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, his mercy, his love, his acceptance, his welcome, how can we refuse to give it away? 
to someone who has sinned against us. Which inevitably, no matter how grievous this sin is, is trifling in comparison to the sin of each of us against the holy God. How can we refuse to give that grace? We can't. It's pride that convinces us not to. But when we do, we become nothing less than hypocrites. And an unforgiving, conflicted, resentful, bitter Christian is a contradiction. Christians are peacemakers. We are reconcilers. We are forgivers. Because God has made peace with us through Christ. He has forgiven us by the blood of Jesus Christ. He has reconciled us to himself through the work of the gospel. How can we not? How can we refuse? And the critical thing is, I think you all know this little psalm, Psalm 133. And it talks about how beautiful it is when brothers and sisters dwell together in unity. Why? Because it's there. It's in that locale, it's in that place that God commands a blessing. You want your church to be blessed? You want to see people saved? You want to see lives changed? You want to see the Spirit of God moving powerfully? Fight for peace, forgive the offense. If you have hurt somebody, go to them and be reconciled. Love one another as God in Christ has loved you. Satan knows very well that if he can destroy our unity, he can destroy our church. If he can destroy our unity, he can destroy our church. Listen to what James, the brother of Jesus, said. I love this phrase. This is James chapter 3, verse 18. A harvest of righteousness. Is that what you want? That's what I want for my church. I want a harvest of righteousness. A harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. A harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Let the grace of God flow through your life. And why is this so important? Why is it so critical to to the functioning and to the effectiveness of the church Point number two is that genuine forgiveness validates the gospel. Genuine forgiveness validates the gospel. Now, I don't know if you, like me, when I first read this again, I preached on Philemon before, but it was years ago, and I I, I looked at this verse, number six, and I thought, what in the world is the Apostle Paul saying here? I got number four, and I got... I'm sorry, number five. I got verse four, and I I understood verse six, but verse five seemed to be a little bit cryptic to me. I couldn't quite get my head around it. So let me read this passage for you again. Paul says this, I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers, because I hear of the love and of the faith you have towards the Lord Jesus for all the saints. Verse six is the one that I struggle with. And here's what Paul's praying. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. For I've derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. So what Paul does here in verses 4, 5, and 7 is he edifies, he builds up, he encourages, and he speaks to Philemon about what God has done in his life. So it's very probable that this is not who Philemon was before he met Jesus. And the apostle is saying, look what Jesus has done. Look what the gospel has done. Look what the Holy Spirit has accomplished in your life. And he kind of gives them a a list. He says, he has made you a loving, faithful, joy-inspired, and comforting, edifying brother in Christ. And then he says, so, I want to ask you to do something. Here's what I'm praying you will do. As I said, this is somewhat cryptic and a little bit hard to understand at first glance. So I'm going to give you the PLUA version of this. Have you heard of the PLUA version? Probably that's a good thing. It's the Paul Little unauthorized amplified version. It says this. I'm praying that your fellowship created by your faith, praying that the fellowship created by your faith will be lived out in such a way that it will, be, that it will effectively reveal the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us 
through the gospel for the sake and the glory of Jesus Christ. So Paul's prayer is not just that Philemon would, would forgive and be reconciled to Onesimus. He is praying that in forgiving Onesimus, the gospel will be presented tangibly. The message of the Christian gospel will be lived out practically as Philemon loves a brother who sinned against him. Paul's prayer is not just that Philemon will forgive Onesimus, but that he will live out, exemplify, and illustrate the gospel by by forgiving what in his mind could perhaps be an unforgivable offense. And why is this so critical? Why is Paul praying this? I'm sure Paul prayed it every single day from the journey from Rome back to Colossae. I'm sure he was asking God that he would be at work in the heart of Philemon to accomplish this. Why? Genuine forgiveness evidences, evidences, substantiates, validates the gospel we preach. When we forgive one another, we are evidencing the gospel. We are validating that what we believe is in fact true. Costly, but true. And we've got to understand this. Oftentimes we think that the loudest voice in the church is the one who is standing at the front preaching. I'm not convinced that's the case. I'm a preacher, and I believe critically in the importance of preaching. It is critical that we have preaching. But if there's anything that's more critical than preaching, it is a church that lives the gospel. It's a church that exemplifies the gospel and says to the world, by our actions, look, it's true. I was bitter, but God has made me loving. I was angry, but God has changed my heart. I had a heart of stone, but God has given me a heart of flesh. He has transformed me by grace. I'm the recipient of God's mercy. Because when, the, when, the, when, the, when forgiveness and the ethos it fosters begins to characterize our church, we become a living illustration of the gospel. Yeah, we need an orthodox message. And that's one of the reasons that I'm here this morning, because we left a denomination to come to a denomination that has an orthodox message and stands four square on it and is unashamed of it and will not change. That's why we joined. But folks... Besides orthodoxy, we need a milieu of love, an atmosphere created by the Spirit of God so that when non-Christians walk into our midst, they, they are, they're shocked because there's nothing on the planet, there's no atmosphere on the planet like that created by a group of Christians who genuinely love one another and who war for forgiveness and unity and love. And conversely, unforgiveness, bitterness, resentment, acrimony, animosity within the church just screams to the world that what we believe is a joke. It nullifies, it belies our testimony. And I've said to churches before that if you can't fix this brokenness, if you can't fix this conflict, if you can't deal with this acrimony, if you can't, through the gospel, learn to love one another, please stop preaching the gospel. Because you're doing more damage to the kingdom than good. I'm convinced that a genuinely loving, unified church is the most powerful force in our world. Sadly, many churches don't even pursue this as a goal, however. It's not even on our radar. A lot of us just allow unresolved conflicts, bitterness, broken relationships to mar our fellowship. We get stubborn, we get proud. And it mars the church, besmirches the gospel, brings shame to the name of Jesus. And so what do we do? We invest in programs and methodologies and 
formulaic ministries. We go to the next conference and get another binder to help us to try to grow a church. And the heart of the living God breaks because all he says is just love each other. Love one another. Because when we do, when we do, and I've experienced this in my life, when we love one another the way the Lord has called us, in spiritual terms, we create a low-pressure area into which the presence of the Spirit of God just rushes like a mighty wind. When we love each other and we create that milieu of acceptance and love and grace and forgiveness, it creates an atmosphere in which the Spirit of God shows up powerfully and accomplishes great things for his glory. I want you to go to the book of John with me very quickly. I don't want to run out of time here, but John chapter 17, Jesus is praying. Praying for his disciples at first, then he begins to pray for those who will believe on his name through their ministry. He's talking about us. And from verse 20 to verse 24, he prays the same thing three times because of a result that he identifies twice. And I want you to see this. John chapter 20, uh, John chapter 17, verse 20. He says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Here's the prayer. That they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. That they also may be in us, so that, here's the result, the world may believe that you sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them. That, here's the prayer, that they may be one, even as we are one. I and them, and you and me. That they may become perfectly one. There it is again. Why? So that the world may know that you sent me and loved them, even as you loved me. Now hear this. There is something that a unified, loving, forgiving church, where grace flows and peace lives, that says to the world, Jesus is not dead. Jesus is essentially praying this. Father, I'm praying that they will be one, that you will make the church perfectly one, so that the world might know that you sent me. The church's unity and the incarnation go together. It's our unity that shows the world that Jesus is in our midst. It's our forgiveness. It's the flowing of grace. It's living the gospel that demonstrates clearly to the world that Jesus is alive. That's why it's so critical. That's why it's so absolutely critical that if there are broken relationships between husband and wife, brother and sister, brother and brother, whatever it is, church member and pastor, pastor and church member, we've got to make it right. Because the effectiveness of our message hinges on this. It's that critical. When we love each other like this, we become a foretaste of heaven, as I said, that a non-Christian simply can't find in a bar or in a club or an association or anything else in the world. The church that I pastored for 32 years in Georgetown, as I said, is very much like this, and it's probable well, it was certain that in the church that I pastored, there was people, were people who were wrestling with each other. Hurts and wounds that hadn't been dealt with. Bitterness that was growing and festering. And so let me just plead with you. As a preacher of the gospel, I plead with you. Be reconciled to your brother. Be reconciled to your sister. Go and make it right. Seek healing. Because the effectiveness, effectiveness of a message hangs in the balance. And again, I want to ask the question, how can we have the gall? How can we have the temerity? How can we, having received the grace of God, refuse to give it away?
And the third point, similar to the first two, is this. Genuine forgiveness validates our salvation. Paul tells, Paul tells Philemon in the next few verses that I could command you to do, I could order you, I could tell you what to do. But for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you. That word command obviously is a verb. He says, I could command you to forgive, which might sound to some of us a little counterintuitive. Well, how, how, how is that authentic? How am I being true to me by doing something I don't feel? Well, this is the scripture. This is exactly what Paul tells him to do. You may not feel it. You may not want to do it. Your heart may be right now filled with bitterness and anger towards this young man that betrayed you and stole from you and made you a laughingstock with your neighbors. And although you don't feel it right now, I could command you, but I'm not. I'm not. I appeal to you. Forgiveness is not a feeling. Forgiveness is never a feeling until we forgive. Love in the scriptures is not a feeling. The emotion of love follows the action. It's a verb. Forgiveness is a verb. It's what we are called to do as followers of Christ. It's our obligation. It's a choice that we make that profoundly impacts our hearts and changes our attitude towards the person who has sinned against us. It's a decision. It is a moment in time, sometimes repeated. Go to Matthew chapter 6. I'm sorry, Matthew chapter 5, Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is speaking. Matthew chapter 6. Jesus speaking. This is what he says. After the Lord's Prayer, talking about our Father, sort of indulging in the grace that we know because God is our Father, resting in the grace of God, he says this. Verse 14, for if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. That's a frightening statement. That is a frightening statement. But they're predicated on the assumption of Jesus that someone who knows the grace of God can share it. Might not be easy. It might be a process. It might be challenging. It might be painful. It might come with a lot of tears. But someone who knows the grace of God has the capacity to give it away. And so he's able to make this statement, this blunt uncategorical. This is the way it is. If you can't forgive, you can't can't claim to be my follower. So how do we do it? We recognize the enormity of our sin. How do we forgive others who have sinned against us? We realize what happened at Calvary. That the Lord Jesus Christ, who had never sinned, went to the cross for me. And in six hours, in a transaction that I will never get my head around on this earth or in heaven, God vented his wrath on his son for my sin. And he gave me the righteousness of Jesus Christ. The holy, perfect, sinless life of Jesus was attributed to my account that day. The Holy Spirit, a couple of centuries later, quickened me to that realization and saved me. By grace, I'm saved. By grace. 
unmerited grace of God for an undeserving, sinful man whose very existence offended the holiness of God. Now God says to me, I want you to forgive people who have hurt you. And you probably know you can't be in ministry for 40 years and not get hurt. And the only way that you can forgive is going back to the cross and realizing what Jesus has done for you. Realizing how vile, how sinful, how offensive your sins are. You were to a holy, righteous God. You see, cheap grace doesn't ever lead to forgiveness, real genuine forgiveness. The gospel, it says, come to Jesus and everything will be better. You want to be healthy, wealthy, and wise? Jesus will answer all your prayers and make it better. God can't wait to receive you into his heaven because he just loves you so much. His day is not going to be complete until you respond to him and say yes. Like that kind of message. And so that's why the Puritan said, for a person to be saved, they first have to go to Sinai before they go to Calvary. And what they meant by that is the law's got to do its work. The realization that we are vile, we are sinful, we are repugnant, that the wrath of God was heavy upon us. But Jesus, but Jesus took our place, took our sin. And because of his grace, we have peace with God. And how can I refuse? How, how with integrity can I infuse to forgive someone who has sinned against me? Because it's paltry. It's insignificant compared to what I have done to God. In Luke chapter 7, Jesus is invited to dinner with a guy named Simon. He's a Pharisee and he's pretty self-righteous, holier-than-thou type. A guy who was all about cheap grace and self-righteousness. And he invites Jesus in. And Jesus is reclining at table. And a woman from the city, a prostitute, comes in. And she begins to weep. And her tears fall on his feet. And she wipes his feet with her hair. And she anoints them with, a, with perfume from an alabaster jar. And she kisses his feet. And the self-righteous, cheap grace Pharisee looks at Jesus and says to himself, this guy can't be a prophet because he is a prophet. He would know that this woman is unclean. She is a prostitute. And Jesus, knowing Simon's thoughts, said, Simon, I'm going to ask you a question. There was a loan shark and two guys owed him money. One guy owed him 50 denarii, which is basically the one denarii is what a, a laborer would make in a day back then. The other guy owed him 500. And he says to him, let me read it for you. Who will love him more? Simon says, well, I suppose the one that was forgiven more. And Jesus said to him, you have judged rightly, Simon. Then turning towards the woman, the sinner, the vile one, the immoral one. He said to Simon, do you see this woman, Simon? I entered your house, you gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. Why did she do what she did? Because she knew the enormity of the grace of God. And why don't we love 
our brothers and sisters? Why don't we love our wives and husbands? Why don't we love our kids? Why don't we love people in this church the way that we should? Why don't we extend them the grace of forgiveness, seek reconciliation, do what we are called to do? I think when it gets right down to it, we've either forgotten the cross or haven't spent time at the foot of the cross for a while. So my appeal to you is this as I close. If there's an issue, if there's a brokenness, if there's something that needs to be healed, go to the foot of the cross and see Jesus there and recognize that what he did, he did for you. It was your sin that nailed him there. You put him there. And revel in the grace that is the cross, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Revel in your forgiveness. Revel in his love. Bathe yourself in his mercy. Rejoice in his grace and get up and go to that brother, that sister, that family member, that loved one. Go and be reconciled. Because it'll create peace in our church, right? It'll validate the truth of what we believe. And it will prove to you down in the depths of your souls as the Holy Spirit testifies to your spirit that you are indeed a child of the living God. Amen? Okay, let's pray together. Father God, I thank you for this little book, this letter that was written, 340 approximate words, penned by the Apostle Paul after he had written that great letter to the Church of Colossae. It speaks to our hearts, Lord, about how we need to live our lives, what it is that you have called us to do and how you have called us to be individually and as a church. And so I pray for Hope Markham, Father. I pray that if there is brokenness, if there is woundedness, if there's conflict, if there's unresolved issues, I pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would work a healing for the honor and the glory of Jesus, for the testimony of his gospel the integrity of his church, and the healing of the hearts of his people. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you.